Hello and welcome to a new season of Interpreting India. Geopolitical realignments, sustainable growth, healthcare financing, inclusive digital transformations, climate change, supply chain disruptions, urbanization and several other critical global matters envelop the world as India holds the G20 presidency. We at Carnegie India continue to bring voices from India and around the world to examine the role of technology, the economy and international security in shaping India's future. We begin this year with a focus on the governance of India's cities. India's patterns of urban growth came under sharp focus during the COVID-19 pandemic. Many highlighted the poor quality of urban services as contributors to the spread of the epidemic. This laid bare many pre-existing deficiencies in urban governance that have continued to plague India's urban areas. As India continues to grow and urbanize, municipal bodies that govern our cities will continue to increase in relevance. There is a huge diversity of municipal bodies in India, from nagar panchayats at the lowest level to municipalities and municipal corporations. We also have specialized bodies like the Delhi Development Authority in Delhi and the MMRDA in Mumbai responsible for urban planning and development. Cities also have specialized bodies for water, sewerage, transport and electricity services. Their compositions, lines of responsibility and accountability, manner of appointment and selection vary according to each body. In most cases, the state government and the local government both have complementary or overlapping powers with respect to such services. And few municipal bodies are completely financially autonomous of state governments or completely responsible to the residents of the municipality. Given this institutional structure for urban governance, the questions we will try to answer in this episode of Interpreting India are, how do we achieve better outcomes in terms of service delivery? Do we need to change how these institutions are designed, their composition or their powers? Or are there other solutions that we should explore, especially from successful practices around the world? To answer these questions, our guest today is Mr. Matthew Glasser. Mr. Glasser is the Director for Municipal Law and Finance at the Center for Urban Law and Finance in Africa. Prior to this, he has been the lead urban specialist for the World Bank and has also worked extensively in India and the USA. He has authored a World Bank report titled Institutional Models for Governance of Urban Services that we will discuss in detail in today's discussion. This report brings a comparative perspective to the problems of urban governance that I just highlighted. It covers urban services like roads, water, and transport services in three countries, India, South Africa, and the USA. By taking a deep dive in how these services are provided in specific cities in each of these countries, the report provides important insights on how to make improvements to urban governance institutions. I'm therefore privileged to have the lead author of the report for today's discussion. Matt, welcome to Interpreting India. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. You come into this conversation with decades of experience on urban governance, municipal governance. So I just want to set the context for our discussion by asking you to give a brief background of what you've been doing over these years. You've worked in South Africa, India, the US, obviously. So could you just give us a brief background of what you've been working on? Sure. Um, I was trained uh, as a political science and a lawyer. And my first job after law school was with a firm, small firm that did municipal bonds and municipal law in Denver, Colorado. And so in a sense, I sort of stumbled into it. Um, 
From that firm, I went on to become the city attorney for a city in Colorado, Broomfield, Colorado, which was a very fast growing city, uh, the fastest in Colorado at that point, and one of the fastest in the United States. And as the city attorney, you get involved in everything that a city does. And, and cities in the United States, as you probably know, tend to have very wide responsibilities. They, they're responsible for the land use and zoning, for the water and wastewater systems, for the streets, um, even you know for the criminal code at the local level, for things like where you can walk your dog and that sort of thing. So as a city attorney, I got involved in a wide range of things. But the thing I was probably most interested in all along was the question of how do we pay for all this stuff, uh, municipal finance. Um, I started working internationally in 1992-93, initially in the former Soviet Union in Eastern Europe. This was following the fall of the Soviet Union, and the entire economy was being restructured so that uh, local governments in these countries were taking on responsibilities that in some cases had been the responsibilities of enterprises. You know, in a small town, the coal mine provided the uh, clinics, the schools, the, all the social support. And now with uh, that coal becoming non-competitive in a global market, somebody else had to take on these services. So the question is, how do you finance and deliver services like this at the local level in the context of this restructuring? And then in um, 1998, I was invited to help South Africa's National Treasury develop their regulatory framework for municipal borrowing. Um, and in a way, just like I started in the former Soviet Union after the collapse of um, communism, I started working in South Africa's uh, national treasury after the fall of apartheid. So this was a period of profound change. Suddenly, these municipalities had to provide services to the vast majority of people who had not received decent services during the apartheid era. Um, and they wanted to try to activate the municipal bond market in order to finance these improvements. So I worked with them on the regulatory framework, and then I went uh, to South Africa and lived there for three years to try and help implement the legislation, first getting it through parliament. Um, and then I've continued to stay involved in South Africa really until the end of last year, until the end of 2022. So I've got a quarter century experience of seeing how policy recommendations get implemented, not quite the same way perhaps you envisioned them, what the outcomes are. And it's been fascinating. Um, after my three years in South Africa, uh, I took a job as an urban specialist in the World Bank, and I worked in various other parts of Africa, as well as in India, the Philippines, and other places. Um, so all my life, I guess I've been working at the intersection of urban finance, urban law, and development. Uh, that's probably a longer answer than you wanted, but there you have it. No, that's fascinating. And you've been at uh, very interesting places at the right time, I would say. Uh, and so... From this vantage point, what are the two, three big urban governance problems you are trying to solve or that you think people are trying to solve in these countries? And do you think these are the right problems? And do you see these in a slightly different way from your vantage point? Yeah. 
So let me say I, I'm speaking on behalf of myself and not on behalf of the World Bank, which commissioned this report that we're talking about today. Um, so I think when you ask about uh, what are the big governance problems, it kind of depends who you ask, right? If you ask national governments or institutions like the World Bank that work mostly with national governments, the issues they tend to be concerned with are things like the technical capacity of the urban governance system, the national standards that they might think are appropriate for local government. They tend to be concerned with upward accountability. Can we monitor where the money's going? Can we monitor the outcomes at the national level? Um, if you'd ask international NGOs, that work with local governments because the NGOs tend to work more with local governments. Sometimes they end up deciding that the local governments don't have capacity or don't have accountability. So then they construct parallel systems. And um, that's, that can be a bit problematic, but sometimes it's the only way to get things done. And then, you know, a fashion for the last, 10 or 15 years has been these performance-based urban systems where you, you give a grant conditioned on the municipality, the urban local body has to achieve certain standards. Um, the, the schemes, you know, Jnurm and Swatch Bharat and these other schemes in India are examples of those sort of performance-based schemes. Um, now, you know, my own view is what, needs more attention, all of that stuff's important, but what also needs attention is the local work. Um, because no matter how good the national policy framework is, the action is really at the local level. Uh, and so meaningful citizen participation is really important to how the city is in the end going to look, how it's going to function. Um, Downward accountability is critically important. Uh, accountability is a funny word because if you say it to different people, they'll hear it different ways. You know, a, a national official is likely to say, I want to understand how uh, these people working at the local level are accountable upward. But in terms of effective accountability, a lot of times it's the people to whom services are supposed to be provided that are the more effective um, channel of accountability, if you can activate that channel. So, you know, I guess in a sense, the question is, do you think about the, the officials, whether they're elected or appointed, do you think about the officials at the local level as tools for implementing national policies? Or do you think about them as leaders who can deliver good services to citizens? And you touch upon a lot of this in the report also. So let's let's dive into this. So just to set the stage, I wanted to understand what were the motivations for doing this study? Because you've done basically a pretty deep dive into specific municipal services and bodies in three different countries. What was it that you were trying to tease out or understand? Here? So, you know, I... I'm not fully familiar with what dialogues were going on between the World Bank and the Ministry of Housing and Urban Administration. But as I understand it, it sort of started with a question about whether services like, let's say, water services should be corporatized. 
in, in many cities in India and everywhere else in the world, water services are the responsibility of a water department within the city administration. But some cities have corporatized those departments. They've created a company under the company's law, whatever that may be in different countries. And that company might be wholly owned by the city. So it's still in control, but it's a separate entity with its own accounting, its own management. Sometimes they do this because they can pay higher salaries if it's not technically part of the city administration. You know, and in cities like Delhi, there are separate governmental structures that are neither a city department nor a city enterprise, but like the Delhi Jal Board is a separate government entity. Um, and, you know, so the question is, does, does this way of organizing services have an effect on the outcome? Uh, we wanted to test that hypothesis. Is there uh, one kind of institution that has inherent advantages over other forms? Is it right to think that a water company would do better than a water department? Right. Um, not to jump ahead, but I think one of the things you do bring out in the report that that's not necessarily the case, even though there are some things you need to do better. Yeah, I think the way I come out of this, the way what I take away is that there are some things that a poor institutional form, there are problems a poor institutional form can create. But even having the most ideal institutional form, you still may not get good outcomes. And there are probably different institutional forms that can deliver excellent outcomes. It's more about, it's less about the form and more about the substance. Uh, is, is the functionality clear? Is the accountability clear? Uh, is the financial impact clear? No, if you can, if you can make the accountability clear and effective. If you can avoid confusing overlaps in accountability, uh, if you can give the people who are supposed to benefit from the service a voice in how services uh, and, and the urban environment more generally are delivered, then you're going to get better outcomes. Yeah. And uh, so before we go into these questions in detail, can you just set the facts? What are the kinds of institutional variations that you are observing? In India, we are familiar with two or three different kinds, municipal bodies of either corporations or councils and so on, or parastatals like the Development Authority and Delhi DDA and the Delhi Jal Board and so on. But uh, more specifically, are there variations or similarities in South Africa and the U.S.? Yeah, I, I also maybe as a as an introduction to that, I, I do want to point out that we're comparing countries that have very different financial capacities. OK, the um, of the three countries, the in, India has the lowest per capita uh, GDP. And so it's got to do more with less. Uh, the United States. Uh, by almost any standard, is a very wealthy country. And so even if there were substantial wastage, you could still deliver decent services. So if we say, well, look at these U.S. examples and they do a good job, you know, you have to take into account that they've got a heck of a lot more money to play with. So, so having said that, I would say that in most of the world, and certainly in the, in the cities that we studied. So we looked at 
four Indian cities, two American cities, and two South African cities. And so it was sort of a deep dive on these eight cities rather than an attempt to say something systematic about any country. Uh, and so that's another limitation of the study. It, it doesn't broadly say, you know, the South African model is better than the Indian model or anything like that. It says, let's see what we can learn by looking deeply at, at these specific cities. And so in the United States, in South Africa and in India, a lot of municipal services are typically delivered by a department of the city. And uh, that is the dominant model, I would say, globally. But then you have other countries where some specific services that we might think of as municipal services are determined nationally. You know, there are national utilities, let's say, in the Philippines or in France that deliver uh, electric or, or water services, or there are regional utilities. Uh, but when we're talking about municipal level services, you know, we have the departments, we have the city-owned enterprises. And I think after the 74th Amendment in India, we saw a proliferation of these development authorities, which were, on the one hand, a reaction by the state authorities to what they perceived as a lack of capacity at the local level. We don't know that the municipal corporation has the expertise to do this. So let's create a development authority that's got the expertise. And that's created overlap and confusion in many cases about who's actually responsible. And it's also created this separation between who builds the infrastructure and who's responsible for operating and maintaining it. And that separation has specific consequences as well. And then, you know, besides the the local corporations, the national or regional corporations, the national or regional government entities, these development authorities, you also have cases where there's purely private companies providing certain services. Um, and if it's a service that is regulated by the local government, there may be a PPP, a public-private partnership agreement. So we, we looked at one of those in one of the South African cities. And... Uh uh, obviously, there's a huge diversity in terms of institutional form, and some of this is, like you point out, also uh, uh, the state trying to experiment with what kind of design would actually work uh, in terms of efficiency, cost effectiveness, and so on. Uh, and what you're doing here is you are trying to look at these uh, services and the bodies that are delivering these services, I think, mostly water, sewerage, sanitation, and road transport. And you're trying to examine them from four analytical points. Uh, one is institutional coherence, the other is accountability, the third is autonomy, and then there's uh, accounting and ring fencing, if I'm getting this correct. So can you explain why these four and what do each of these mean? I think I picked those four because looking at the specific reports so in this in this case we had sub reports that were prepared by individual consultants familiar with each country right. don elliott for the us cities nishendra mudli for south africa and bridge gopal lada for the indian cities and when i looked at their reports and and we had asked them to look at specific things uh so that they would be more or less comparable from country to country these were where the biggest differences were. We saw 
that was a big differentiating factor, uh, cohesion versus fragmentation, autonomy or not, uh, accounting standards. And I would say that um, I see accountability and autonomy as kind of a pair. A lot of people will advocate for local accountability or local autonomy, but in addition to local autonomy, of course, there has to be accountability because you don't want an unchecked autonomous entity doing anything. Uh, and similarly, accounting and ring fencing are kind of questions of financial management. Uh, how clearly do the managers and the people who oversee managers, how clearly do they understand the financial implications of what they're doing, uh, the implicit subsidies that may be involved, um, the lack of predictability in financing and so on. So those are, th those were the biggest differences we saw across these three countries in those areas that you've mentioned. Uh, so let me move to the idea of institutional coherence. And this is something that uh, people in India who look at urban institutions almost learn intuitively the degree of fragmentation. And you contrast this with uh, South Africa and even more sharply with the U.S. But then you also uh, end with a statement saying institutional coherence is not a guarantee of success. So can you, A, provide some examples of how designs contrast in all these three countries, but also explain why you reached this conclusion that it's not necessarily a guarantee of success? Yeah. So... When I speak about institutional coherence, I'm thinking about a sort of continuum from coherent institutions, which are broadly responsible for all of the functions that relate, let's say, to water service versus fragmented institutions where different institutions may play a role. In India, we see both horizontal and vertical fragmentation. So whereas, let's say, in an American city, it is the elected city council that would typically be responsible for providing the water service, approving the land uses, deciding where different kinds of uses go, predicting what kinds of services, water, transport, et cetera, they're going to need. One city is responsible for all of that, and, and therefore they want to try and get it right across all those parameters. That's horizontal coherence. Uh, and in the U.S., again, we typically don't have vertical fragmentation, but in India we do, so that you might have um, some services are provided by the elected local body itself, typically smaller things like rubbish collection or, or park maintenance. But a lot of other factors that go into making a city effective are decided at the state level, especially things like land use and and policies about building heights and density and so on. So when you've got different sectoral departments, not always coordinating well, that's horizontal fragmentation. When you've got uh, different levels of government, not necessarily coordinating well, that's vertical fragmentation. Uh, and in India, we really do see both. Um, and then you ask, well, is institutional coherence a guarantee of success? And, you know, I think the, the example that most clearly shows that it is not comes from Johannesburg. Uh, in the 
early days of democracy, Johannesburg took a slightly different tack to most of the other South African cities, and they decided to corporatize almost all of their municipal services. So there was a company set up for water. There was a company set up for electric. There was a company set up for rubbish. There was even a company set up to manage the state theater uh, in Johannesburg, the zoo. Um, and their idea was that by making these separate and accountable units, you could see, is the water system working or failing? And we know who's accountable. It's that company. Uh, now, the reason I say it's not a guarantee of success is they applied exactly the same model, uh, well, more or less the same model, to roads and to water. And in the case of roads, they've just had dismal outcomes. The roads in Johannesburg are deteriorating and um, the roads agency is said to be rife with corruption. The, the streets are getting worse and worse. In the case of water, the level of service has generally been pretty good. And although there's been some recent deterioration for a variety of reasons, um, the, the water service is more or less okay. So you've got two almost identical institutional forms in the same geographic environment and very different outcomes. Uh, so what that tells me is that the institutional form is no guarantee of success. And then if you look across at the United States, you've also got different institutional forms for delivering services in various cities, but they're successful. Uh, they're largely successful. So I think if you have a well-managed, accountable entity providing services, whatever its form, you'll tend to get good services. And if you have a poorly managed and unaccountable entity, you'll tend to have weaker services. So, I mean, you're broadly also saying that this is a question of management. And, and I think the report also talks a lot about organizational culture. So is organizational culture, in your experience, something different from legal accountability or legal incentives or disincentives that's, that are created? or Very much. Does the design itself shape the way organizational culture is shaped or created? I think the design itself can thwart effective accountability and good management. Um, it can create barriers so that it's hard to collaborate with other people responsible for parallel services or those above or below you. But I think that organizational culture is huge. I think it was Thomas Porter from Harvard that said that uh, culture eats strategy for breakfast. And I think, you know, that's that's absolutely right. And it's not just organizational culture, by the way. I think it's also social culture. It's what does the society expect from its institutions. You know, when I was living in India, if I would ask friends, what do you expect of your municipal government, your, your local government? They didn't expect much. Expectations were very low. Um, if I ask friends back in the U.S., they expect a lot. And if they don't get what they expect, they will go down and, and make trouble. They will write letters, they'll call the mayor, they'll uh, appear at public hearings, they'll write letters to the editor. Um, they make a lot of noise if they don't get the level of services to which they feel entitled. So I think it's that question of what am I entitled to as a citizen 
And how much noise will I make if I'm not getting it? Uh, and, you know, in India, there, there are some NGOs and others that make a lot of noise, but the average person sees themselves more or less, you know, having to be responsible for arranging their own. If, if the city provides water to their property, great. If the city doesn't, they accept that they have to do something about it. If the electricity is going out, they accept that they may have to go buy a generator if they can afford to do so. Um, there's not the sense that, by God, I'm going to go hold somebody accountable and I'm going to make them do what they're supposed to do. So it's a cultural external thing as well as an internal thing. Yeah. And I was also, while you were saying this, I was also thinking about why this could be the case. Why do we see this difference most sharply, say, between the U.S. and India, but maybe also other countries? Is, is there something to the fact that the third tier or the local self-government tier in India is something that was designed from above and implemented versus a more bottom-up way of building self-governance mechanisms in the U.S.? Or is there something more to it? Is the Indian, say, national government or the state government actually crowding out the ability of actors or residents at the city level with the consequence that there are no, I mean, there are fewer expectations from local government than to than from the state government. You know, my own personal hypothesis is that this has a lot to do with history because you also see variances across the United States. Mm -hmm. But in general, as white people, uh, immigrants, uh, colonizers pushed across the U.S. continent. Um, they would, the settlements would find themselves isolated, far from other settlements, and largely self-reliant. Uh, so if you wanted to have law and order, you'd hire yourself a sheriff, because nobody's coming from the state or national government to provide law and order. If you wanted streets, you laid them out yourself. If you wanted them paved, you paved them yourself. So local government grew up in a context of really it being the only government in many places. Uh, the state capital or the territorial capital and the national capital were far away. And so this a trope about America's rugged individualists and so on. And that's, you know, not completely without some merit. And I think um, what we saw is these self-organizing structures in settlements. And so if a state or national government had wanted to take away local powers and functions, and, and there were conflicts of that nature, they were starting from the fact that these powers and functions were already being performed at the local level. Whereas in a country like India, you know, in India got even more variation across the country than the United States does. But, uh, you know, a lot of India was under one empire or kingdom, you know, which is top down. And um, whether it's the Mughals or the British Raj or the union government that was established after independence, these are national governments who are accustomed to managing every detail. You know, certainly during the, the British period, everything was centrally controlled. And to some extent, you know, independent India followed in that way of administering things. 
So, yeah, I think I think a lot of stuff is historical. I also think that there are rare opportunities for change that occur. So that, for instance, taking a look at South Africa, in the apartheid era, South Africa had a very centralized government that decided national policy for most things. In the negotiations leading up to a more democratic South Africa, where they were going to have everybody have a voice in government, the political parties that were participating, you know, the National Party, the ANC, the Inkata Freedom Party, and others, didn't really know who was going to win elections. You know, I think if the ANC had understood that it eventually would control all nine provinces, it wouldn't have opted for such a decentralized structure. But I think because they were cutting a cake and nobody knew which piece you would end up with, they tended to make the the cake a more decentralized cake. And so decentralization in South Africa was a reaction to the centralism of the apartheid era. And similarly, in some of the countries uh, of Central and Eastern Europe, uh, they had gotten used to the central planning model, you know, that the Soviet Union uh, developed uh, and implemented. So that let's take a look at Poland. They knew they didn't want to go back to a central planning model with uh, bureaucrats and apparatchiks determining policy. So they put a lot of power in the gminas and the powiats, the, the local institutions. And it was as a, as a bulwark against centralism. So at those moments of profound social change, the opportunity to restructure things occurs. Now, India slid through uh, independence and partition in many ways without changing the fundamental structure. And so it's only, you know, in the 1990s when decentralization is sort of the flavor of the month, flavor of the year, that India starts thinking about decentralization uh, and ultimately comes up, you know, with an amendment to the constitution, which doesn't really mandate anything about the third tier. It, it says that uh, the states may devolve these functions to local government, um, which they always could have done in any event. Uh, and, you know, people don't give up power voluntarily. The apartheid government didn't end voluntarily. The Soviet Union didn't collapse voluntarily. They both collapsed under the weight of internal contradictions, if you will. And then with a relatively clean slate, you could think about how do we want to run this thing going forward? India didn't have that kind of fundamental breakdown of systems that led to, let's look at how we really want to design this from the beginning. Yeah, that's fascinating. And I think, let me just try and bring this back to what is going on right now. And what I'm seeing is two or three trends that seem to be in contrast or in conflict with each other. And I wanted to get your thoughts on this. One is the fact that Indian cities are growing and becoming more dynamic and arguably more politically relevant. Uh, the other is the fact that if you look at the recent RBI report on municipal finances, 
the the municipal bodies themselves seem to be more and more reliant on external sources of funding even as these cities are becoming more and more powerful or more politically salient let's say and which begs the question so if we give up on the idea of fundamental or disruptive reform how do you think about incremental changes to the structures of municipal governance because there seem to be these contradictory trends that seem to be appearing one is say increasing dependence on external funding or the uh, reliance on uh, external funding and the other is the increasing political salience or dynamism of indian cities so how do two of these reconcile to actually create the you know sources and opportunities for reform uh, it's an excellent question i think you know one of the things we say in the report is that the chain of accountability is fundamentally broken in indian cities the um there's an elected body the the councillors or corporators you know that are elected by the people but they don't have control over the administration of the city the administration of the cities under the is in the hands of a city commissioner who's ultimately appointed by the state and and responsible to the state minister that's responsible for local government and and to the chief minister uh and these state level ministers of course are responsible for issues that cover the entire state uh and many indian states remain predominantly rural so it's not going to be at the absolute front of the chief minister's mind how to make city x or city y more dynamic more attractive and so on they're worried about the success of their state to be sure and to the extent that they can be convinced that the success of their state depends on the success of some of their large cities they'll bear that in mind but there's not the kind of direct accountability that you'd like to see and yet urbanization continues because urbanization is largely driven you know by the economic pull uh people feel that they and or their children will have a better future if they move to the city so they keep moving to the city and eventually urban will be more urban than rural you know some people might argue it's already there it's just not recognized in the legal form of urban local bodies versus rural local bodies but um as more and more people live in cities and in big cities they will have more power and influence at what point it reaches the tipping point that they could say you know we're actually generating most of the wealth in this state uh we're the home to most of the innovation to most of the enterprise formation to most of the gdp growth that india so wants we want a bigger voice that might come i mean you know there's a range of ways that a city that a city's elected body could be given more power in the administration of its city you know the most dramatic way would be if you were to take the city commissioner and make them accountable directly to the elected body uh, and then you'd have something that looked very much like the american city manager system uh where the manager is hired by and serves at the will of the city council 
And if they're managing the city well, they go on to have a long and successful career. And if they do a lousy job, they'll be fired and replaced. Um, I think, you know, India is not ready. I shouldn't say India. I don't know of a state in India that's ready to make that change. There is a, some variation across India in the amount of autonomy that different cities have. And I think as, as cities get more autonomy, um, eventually you'll find that some of them succeed more. And autonomy means, as you suggest in your question, fiscal autonomy. You have to be able to raise your own resources to have real autonomy. If you're dependent on transfers from either the state or the national government, then you're obligated to dance to their tune. Uh, if you, if you're generating most of your own revenues, then you have a lot more flexibility about doing what you want to do. But in the, in the current situation with this accountability gap, it's politically disastrous for an elected councillor to try and raise taxes or fees and charges to try and raise more revenue when they don't have the power to deliver their half of the social contract, which is better services in exchange for these higher taxes. I, I think that's, that's the key is you have to get back to a social contract, which says uh, we want better services. We're willing to pay what it costs if you can give us uh, a better standard of living. Uh, so I think we are closing in on time. So I want to end with one last question, broadly around the same set of issues, uh, which is around the whole point of cross-pollination of ideas and successful ideas in particular. And this is something you also talk about in the report, which is that some departments or services within the same city seem to be doing better at their respective job than others. And yet there seem to be significant hindrances to how other agencies or departments take away lessons from these agencies. And you see pretty varying levels of service delivery or quality of services within the same city, depending on what department or agency it is. So why do you think that is happening? And what are the constraints to actually having better, say, pollination of successful ideas? Hmm. And this is something we we are observing within the same city itself, not even, say, across state boundaries or countries. So it's even more remarkable. There are different cultures and different models and people come out of different backgrounds. You know, to be really general, I would say one thing that I observed in the countries of the former Soviet Union is that bureaucrats tended to be risk averse. You know, if, if there's a saying, I probably exists in other languages too, but in Russian, they have the saying, you know, the nail that sticks up gets pounded down. And so if you are seen as a little too big for your britches, doing a little too well, they'll teach you a lesson. So there you've got an active disincentive to try anything new. And I think, you know, in other places, there's more tolerance for failure and experimentation and so on. You know, India's got this wonderful Jugad tradition. You know, we'll make it work. Somehow or another, we'll make it work. And there are people who think that way. In, in any given city, you'll find a bureaucrat who doesn't want to risk his career, doesn't want to alienate the boss, 
doesn't want to take chances. And you'll find somebody else who says, you know, what if we tried this? What if we tried that? Individual leadership matters. You know, I think any system exists in the context of the social and cultural constructs within the country. India tends to be, and maybe especially in North India, a very hierarchical country. You know, people respect authority. I've been in many meetings in India where a junior official will not speak if their senior is present. And, you know, if you go to a meeting in South Africa, everybody speaks, no matter what their rank is. And in the U.S. to a large extent as well. So I think that, you know, if we really want to do social change, we need to not only consult economists, but also sociologists and anthropologists and think about what it takes to do behavior change. I had an experience once. um, I I don't usually take the bus to work, but one day there was a huge snowstorm in Washington, D.C., And I found myself on the bus sitting next to another guy who doesn't usually take the bus. And we got to talking. And I said, what do you do? And he said he was an anthropologist. I said, well, that's fascinating. Who do you work for? He said, I work for IBM. I said, what on earth does IBM need an anthropologist for? And he said, look, every time we want to make some sort of change in the organization, launch some new product, it actually involves culture change. And I help the organization think about how to socialize the desired change. Uh, and, and we don't do that in urban management. You know, we, we enact a new law or pass a new bylaw or put some new system or, or scheme into place and expect it'll just be self-implementing. But there's, there's a whole science to changing cultures and societies. And on a slightly related tangent, I was talking to a friend the other day who said that they they wanted to recommend to me a book. I think it's called The Chrysanthemum and Sword about how people, how Western sociologists went into Japan after World War II and thought, how can we change this society so it's less warlike and more part of a collaborative global structure? Uh, and God knows why they decided to consult the social scientists, but they did. And apparently one of the recommendations was don't change the emperor. He's an important national symbol. Use the emperor Radley rather to say, we're entering into a new era. We've got new allies. We're going to do things in a new way. And I think, you know, the leadership that, the emperor played in that case and the consciousness with which the allied forces approached the culture change process were very important. You know, Germany uh, during World War II was a militaristic, authoritarian, vicious state. And now it's almost a model democracy. So profound change is possible, but it's it has to be approached uh, from many levels with different tools. Thanks, Matt. This has been fascinating. We are out of time, but uh, there's so much food for thought in this discussion. I think only the best conversations can start with urban governance and end with anthropology. Yes. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you, Anirudh. It's been a pleasure for me. Thank you so much, Matt. Thank you very much.
we'll be back in two weeks with a new episode. To make sure you don't miss it, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts from. To learn more about our research and team, you can visit us at CarnegieIndia.org. You can also find us on social media on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Thank you for listening. See you next time.